0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I trust you've already been blessed this morning in, in our worship, in the songs that we've sung, in the prayers that we've, uh, that we've offered. And the video that you saw of India, I think it takes many of us back who've been on the India mission team uh, to, to the actual streets and sounds and, and smells of, uh, of being in India. And the story that you saw of this Pastor Suda is not unique. There are countless stories like that that our team in India is going to hear this week that we've heard in the past, and they're all the same. The love for Jesus Christ is at the center of it all in the lives of these pastors who are being persecuted. In a very real sense, they're being persecuted as they preach the gospel of love and the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Hindu people. Typically, I don't don't go to the worship leader for a Sunday morning and ask them to put a specific song on on the worship set that they're preparing. But probably for the last four weeks, there's been one song ever since I started to uh, uh, prepare for this message. There's been one song that's been on my mind and on my heart, and it's been the song that we started out with. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. So I, I thought, you know, Dustin and I have never actually served together on a Sunday morning before. I'll go and see him and request if he could add that song to the worship package. So yesterday morning, the worship team was here. Um, I came into the church. I was in the foyer. They were just chatting about something, and then they started to practice, and the song they were practicing was, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And I thought, you know, it's, it's all good. It's, it's all covered. God's got it. And, uh, and so I trust that you've been, you've been blessed already. The reason the song has been so much on my heart is because we need the Holy Spirit present here. We're going to talk about sin, sin in the life of a believer, sin in the life of someone who professes to be a Christian, someone who professes to live for the Lord, and that's not an easy topic. That's not an easy subject to deal with. And the only way that we can deal with it, with integrity, is if the Holy Spirit is present and we are submitted to him. It is a life of Solomon. It is coming to an end. We've been spending some time looking at his life. And it's been a life of great accomplishment, great wealth, great wisdom, great fame and yet it's a life that ends rather poorly solomon receives the gift of wisdom from god he's a young man when he takes on takes over the throne of his father david but he's an inexperienced man and sometimes that comes through in the life that we witness when we meet solomon in chapter 3 he is kind of uncertain about being a king and he stumbles And unfortunately, those stumbles continue in his life. He never recovers. In fact, the stumbles continue to get worse as time progresses. Solomon did not end as well as he had started. It is a life of warning that we look at this morning. The passage that we're going to read brings us to Solomon's demise. It is a life that ends with sin fumbles, foolishness, despite the fact that he had received the gift of wisdom, of wealth, of peace from his enemies directly from God. And as Solomon grew older and older, his life became more and more about himself and less and less about God. Chapter 11 highlights his greatest sin, which is the sin of idolatry. Will you please stand with me as we read chapter 11? We're only going to read the first 13 verses. This is where we see the, the pinnacle of Solomon's sin and then God pronouncing judgment on him. 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in the first verse. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. You must not marry with them because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the god of his fathers, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. May God bless his word. You may be seated. You know, before we, before we get into the passage itself, let me just share with you three very, very quick applications and these are ones that jump straight out of the pages of the Bible at us. They're, they come right at us. The first one has to do with the stewardship of our gifts and talents. I think Pastor Terry spoke about that a few weeks ago when he mentioned that every good gift, every talent that we have, is a gift from God. And our responsibility has to do with the stewardship of these gifts. What does good stewardship mean? Good stewardship means that these talents and these gifts are being used for the glory of God. If they're being used for anything else, it is a sin. It is not good stewardship. So the first lesson that jumps out at us is, as we look at Solomon's life is that he took these gifts and somehow thought they were about him. He was not a good steward. And so the lesson is, for us is to be cognizant of these, these gifts and how they are being used. The second application perhaps is for maybe the older demographic in the room. Parents and grandparents and elders. And the application is this. Never stop praying for your next generations. In verse 12, God holds back the judgment from Solomon because of David. For David's sake... Even though God pronounced the judgment that the kingdom will be split up and torn away from Solomon, he does not make it happen within Solomon's life. So if you are a grandparent today, if you're a parent today, never stop praying for your children. Because you don't know how God will use your prayers. Your intercession may be the very thing that stays God's hand as they make the decision to walk away from their faith, as they make the decision to turn away from your God, that's the children's prerogative. Your responsibility is to continue to pray for them. And the third one, perhaps, is for the younger, younger members of our congregation this morning. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Do not marry an unbeliever. If you're in the stage of your life, where you're looking for a partner to enter into a marriage relationship with, do not marry an unbeliever. The Bible is pretty clear, I'm just saying what the Bible says. Second Corinthians chapter six says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And just in case you don't get that, the verse continues on and says, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For you are a temple of the living God. So if you're in that stage of your life, your first criterion, your first filter for choosing a mate is their belief. Do they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior? You know, you can extend that application to Uh, to dating as well, you know, young ladies, if you're looking to introduce a young man to your to your dads, well, first of all, give us lots of notice. (laughs) Give us lots of notice. Enough time, enough time for us to go and get our gun license. (laughs) Go to the shooting range a few times so that we don't miss. Give us lots of time. Same thing with you young man. This is totally cyber. It's not even in my notes. <laughs> yeah. Young man, if you're going to ask ask a young lady to go out, call her dad first. You will score so many points. So many points. I'll tell you he'll be in your corner for the rest of your life. It's not even there. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. If you're a believer, when you enter into the second most important relationship in your life, make sure it's with a believer. So those were just some of the things that jump at us right away. Now let's look at the passage of Scripture. When we look at our English Bibles, the third word in the verse is however. Now you already know that if there is a however or a but, or an except in the middle of a sentence. It means that everything that's happened before that is irrelevant, and everything that happens after is what matters. In Solomon's case, unfortunately, this however is not the only however you see. Right in chapter three, it says that he was offering sacrifices except that he was doing it at the high places. He was marrying, except these women were from foreign nations. And here we come to the greatest of Solomon's sin, and it starts with King Solomon, however. King Solomon had a problem. He had a sin problem that we want to talk about this morning. You know, in James chapter 1, it says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. And then verse 15 goes on to say this. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And after sin has full grown, it gives birth to death. You know, that 15th verse in James chapter 1 is a commentary of Solomon's life. He had desires that conceived and gave birth to sin. He had sin that grew full-blown and gave birth to death. Verse 15 captures Solomon's life in one sentence. Solomon's life is entrenched in sin. His religiosity, his religious practices are all rituals. They have nothing to do with his personal submission to God. They had everything to do with the public ritual observance and doing what he was supposed to do as king over Israel. His public life and his personal life were complete opposites. And so we see four red flags in the life of Solomon. These are four red flags that we, we, we should probably note because these are the same things that exist today in the life of a believer who's living in sin, who's still living in sin. These are four flags that if someone had looked at Solomon and pointed them out to him, maybe we would have a different conclusion to his life. So here's the first red flag. It is the red flag of compromise. When a believer starts to compromise in what God has asked them to do, in how God has called them to live, whenever they compromise, there is sin in the life of that person. That is evident in the life of Solomon. Right from chapter 3, when he marries the Egyptian princess, he has compromised. I don't know what his logic was. The Bible says he wanted to to make an alliance with the Pharaoh, and that's the political reason. But I'm sure that this man who had God-given wisdom could come up with any justification for his sin. Was there a shortage of, of worthy maidens in Israel? Did he he justify to himself that by marrying Pharaoh's daughter, he will have an an edge over, over Pharaoh? Or that people of God will actually be lord over the Egyptians in this instance, perhaps? The point is that whatever mental hoops and mental gymnastics he went through, in the end, he compromised on the standard that God had set for him, and especially for him as king over his people. And that's to a great degree true for Christians today as well. We compromise. Whether it comes to embellishing a little on on our expense reports to our employers or selecting what we watch on television or in a movie theater, we compromise. And we compromise because we do not believe that God can actually take care of the need that it is that we're compromising for. So when we don't think that God can provide our financial needs, our financial integrity is put into question, and we compromise by embellishing our expense reports. And you can extend that example to any part of your life. It is, it is a question of whether God can meet our need or not in any area of our life whenever we compromise. Where do you compromise? Where is it that you compromise? I was sitting in in a meeting at work one day and we were just talking, and a statement was made around the table. This was the statement. Every person has a price at which they will compromise. Every person has a price. I challenged that, but this person was emphatic. Every person has a price. Do you have a price tag? Do I have a price tag? What is the cost? What is the number where I choose to shelf God and do what I want? Compromise is a very slippery slope. Once you set your foot on it, there's no turning back. There's no coming back. Because with every step, you slide deeper and deeper into sin. And before you know know it, you've gone too far. The second red flag Is that of willful disobedience. That's another red flag in the life of a believer and that's very much evident again in the life of Solomon as well. He cannot plead ignorance. He cannot say that he wasn't aware of what the law required of him. He knew, I would suggest, the law better than anyone else in his time. It says that Solomon fulfilled all the requirements of the law, which means that on every single day he knew exactly what type of sacrifice he was supposed to do, exactly how he was supposed to be in the temple, exactly how he was supposed to lead his people, according to the law. He knew the law. And yet he chose to disobey. In Deuteronomy, over and over again, God said, The king over Israel shall not have a foreign wife, nor should he have many wives. Solomon did that. He started with one and went to 700 and 300 concubines along the way. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, it says, the king should not have massive numbers of horses or chariots. Solomon did that. He built cities for his chariots because he couldn't keep them in Jerusalem with him. God told his people, do not go back to Egypt. That was a place of bondage. And that's exactly where Solomon starts his married life, with an Egyptian princess. He broke the first two laws in the Ten Commandments. He built idols, and he did not worship the Lord, his God. Solomon willfully disobeyed. He worshipped detestable gods. Those are the words in the Bible. Ashtoreth and Chemosh and, and Molech, these were detestable gods, and we'll talk about them in in a minute. But there was a pattern of willful disobedience in his life. And that's another red flag that we need to be aware of. Is there a pattern of willfully ignoring and disobeying God in our life? The third red flag is that of a gradual escalation in the severity of his sin. You know, when we meet Solomon in in chapter 3, we see him offering sacrifices at high places. Now, In and of itself, it sounds really bad, except that God had actually made that provision for the Israelites. When they entered Canaan, crossed the Jordan, and so on, God said to them, you know what? Until the temple's built, you can offer sacrifices in your hometowns. So this practice in itself was sanctioned by God. It was approved by God for a period of time. However, over time, what happened was, that the Israelites started to take over the rituals that were part of the pagan practices of worshiping on high places and incorporated them into their worship and their sacrifices to the true God. And so the worship at at an altar built for the Lord was not really that different than what was being offered at the other pagan gods' altars. And yet we see Solomon going in and doing the exact same thing. Now, some of the commentators have said that even though he was offering sacrifices at the high places, like the other other people, his heart really was in tune with God at that time, and I, I believe that's true. I believe it's that reason why God met Solomon in Gibeon. And yet, that's chapter three. By the time we get to chapter eleven, Solomon's practices of offering sacrifices in high places have actually turned into full-blown idolatry, full-scale idolatry. He was actively offering sacrifices to these detestable gods of the heathens. There was Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility, and temple prostitution was a common practice among her followers. There's Chemosh, who was the destroyer, and then there's Molech, who was probably the worst of them all. His name actually means the personified ruler of shameful sacrifice. His name meant personified ruler of shameful sacrifice. That would be a great conversation to have with someone who follows Moloch, right? What does your God's name mean? Well, he's the personified ruler of shameful sacrifice. That's great. And my God's name is Yahweh. These were detestable gods. Child sacrifice was one of the key rituals that was practiced for Moloch. And in his case... The idol was shaped so that the hands of, of this person were reaching out and the arms were kind of like a, like a slide. And instead of the belly, it was a big furnace. And parents will bring their firstborns and place them in the hands of Molech. Detestable practices. And God said, let there be no prostitution In my temple. Let there be no child sacrifice in my temple. And that's what Solomon the Wise does. He had slipped so far into sin. He had compromised, he had willfully disobeyed, and he had come to that point where he was in the the thick of all of this sin. The fourth red flag is that of the absence of accountability. You know, this one doesn't have as much to do with, with Solomon, perhaps, as it does with, with the people around him. Not once in the entire life of Solomon do we read that there was one man or one woman or one child or one prophet who stood up before Solomon and said, what you're doing is wrong. Even if we give him grace and we say, you know, he married the first First uh, princess, because he was young, he was inexperienced, he was in love, blah, blah, blah. No one stood up to Solomon and said, your second marriage is wrong. Your wife, number three, is wrong. Your wife, number 700, is wrong. 699 times, no one in God's people stood up and challenged Solomon. Solomon and let's not forget about the 300 concubines. 999 times he made these relationships and no one held him to account. This can, this, the same could be said about his addiction to wealth and to amassing horses and chariots and all of that stuff. No one Said to him, Solomon, we've built the temple. We don't need money for that. Solomon, we've built your palace. We don't need any more money. Solomon, stop hoarding, stop hoarding. No one stood up, and I wonder if there are there's a couple of reasons. I think these are the same reasons why we find a lack of accountability in the churches. There is a lack of accountability within the church body. So the first reason I think is that we have this this uh, this mindset of don't rock the boat. We don't want to rock the boat. In Solomon's case, you know, everyone wanted to get along with the king. You wanted to be nice to the king because you wanted the king to be nice to you. You know, maybe you would get something out of that. But no one asked any tough questions of Solomon. They didn't want to rock the boat. And it's the same thing in our churches. We don't ask each other the tough questions. Let me ask you this. Have you asked someone in your life? If they have a spending problem, have you asked them the tough questions about money management? Have you asked someone questions about purity, if that's a challenge for someone in your life? Have you got people in your life who have the permission to ask those questions of you? We are too concerned with the spirit of getting along than the spirit of God. When there is Spirit of God moving in His people, there is open accountability between people. You know, I've been, I've been very blessed to be a part of a, a small group of men for, for, for many years. Okay, I, I did say small group of men, right? Because in my head I heard myself say, a group of small men. <laughs> That's, I didn't want you to think I was in a group with hobbits. You know, and we sit, uh, sit around with our hobbit feet on the coffee table and smoke a long bottom leaf. If if you you know Lord of the Rings, you got that. If you didn't, don't worry about it. But these men of average height and weight and size, (laughs) they have been part of my life for almost 10 years. And there have been times where I've been under attack or pressure or stress and I send out an email, and within minutes, I would guarantee you, within 10 minutes, there are responses. I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. And it feels as though I'm standing in a battlefield, and there are these brothers of mine who are standing around me with shields and armor. And by extension, what they have done is they have also held me accountable. They've They've done a few rounds of good Bible thumping on me. They've taken me into the back alley and exercised some good Christian brotherly discipline. Well, actually, LaSalle doesn't have any back alley, so it's probably more like behind the barn. But they've held me accountable. They've held me accountable for my life before them. They know it all. They know the inside. They know the spiritual struggles. They know the highs and the lows is there people like that in your life? Accountability, a key reason that was missing in Solomon's life, and partly because no one held him accountable. Maybe the second reason was there was a celebrity effect around Solomon. You know, he was a young king, young prince, had a vision from God, got wisdom. People were coming to see him from everywhere. You know, there was a lot of tourism revenue attached to all the people who were coming to see him. There was good economy, money was flowing, silver was common. Life was good, and all because of the king. It was a celebrity effect around the king, and so no one wanted to challenge him. That same could happen in churches. We actually see it in churches today where the pastor is the CEO, and he is a head, and he is doing the television broadcasts and book signings, and everyone looks to the pastor. No one looks to Jesus. Because there is a celebrity effect. And perhaps it's a good time for us as a church to to hold ourselves accountable for that. You know, we, we as a church praise God, and we thank Him for... For Pastor Terry, and for Pastor Kevin, and for Pastor Doug, and for Pastor Schuler, These are men who are totally sold to God. There's no doubt in our minds that they serve God all their life, all their time, all their energies are focused on giving glory to God in whatever they do. But we, as the people who sit under their leadership, if we for one minute think that a life changed in this pew or that pew or that pew has anything to do with Pastor Terry or Pastor Doug or Pastor Kevin or Pastor Schuler, we're wrong. If we think that the unity that we enjoy, that the, that the relationships that we enjoy have anything to do with Pastor Terry and Pastor Kevin and Pastor Doug and Pastor Schuler, we're wrong. If we take the glory away from Jesus Christ at any time, and place a pastor, a man, in his place. We're sinning. We praise God for the pastors that we have, but we never elevate them above Jesus Christ. So we see these four for things that are red flags in Solomon's life. There's a consistent compromise. There is willful disobedience. There is a gradual escalation in the severity of his sin. And then there is an absence of accountability. Solomon is doomed. But is there a remedy for dealing with sin? And that remedy, in one word, is repentance. You know, I scoured through the Bible looked at all kinds of research because I wanted to find one verse or one event or one statement where Solomon repented and there isn't one. There is not one verse that talks about Solomon's repentance. You know, the closest he ever came to repenting is when at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he writes in chapter 12, verse 13, he writes, now all has been heard. Now all has been heard here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is the closest he ever came to a repentant statement. You know, in in my heart, I want to believe, I want to believe that somewhere between that last verse of Ecclesiastes and last breath that Solomon took, there was some repentance. There may be. God is merciful. God is gracious. The Bible doesn't record it. And so we have to find someone else that we see repentance evident in. And we don't have to go far. We just have to go one step up in Solomon's life. We have to go to his dad, David. David was like Solomon. He was a sinner. All of his sins, like Solomon's sins, were rooted in his self. You know, he, he, he had so many blunders. But there were two really big ones that he did. First of all, in chapter uh, 24 of Second Samuel, we read about David taking census. He decided that he wanted to count all the fighting men in Israel. And that was a sin. It was a sin because you were only allowed to count that which you owned. And Israel was God's people, not David's people. So David decides to count Israel or the fighting men in Israel And God says, no, I'm I'm angry with you for this. I think there was a second reason, which could have been pride. David was probably doing this count, so next time when he was at the next G7 summit, he could sit down with all the other leaders and say, hey, guys, I I got a lot of fighting men on, on my side. There was probably a little element of pride in that, and God wanted to squash that as well. And yet what we see is repentance. There's consequence for David's sin, but there is genuine repentance And of course, the other sin that we we often talk about in David's life is that of his adultery with, with Bathsheba. And there were consequences for that sin as well. What is different between David and Solomon if they both sinned and sinned because of what was in their flesh and what was in their heart? I believe the difference was their heart. At the heart of the matter between these two men was the heart of the man. David's heart was completely all about God. He was in love with God. And whenever he did something that disappointed God or when he, was, when he failed God, he always turned around, repented, and made his decision, his relationship right with God. It was genuine repentance. You don't see ever a recurrence of the sin that David repented from. He never took another census. He never went back into the Holy of Holies. He never, ever committed adultery again. His repentance was a genuine repentance. That's the model of repentance that should exist in a believer's life. In Solomon's case, there's there's no such thing. There's no such thing. And what boggles my mind about Solomon is that he wrote the book of Proverbs and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and he is constantly constantly warning us about adultery, do not commit adultery. He's constantly warning us about letting the pleasures of this world take us away from worshiping the Lord. And in Ecclesiastes, he's talking about it's all futile. All these passions, all these pleasures, everything that I did was futile. And yet he's living in all of that as he's writing these books. So when we compare David and Solomon, we see that in David's life, God is seated on the throne. In Solomon's life, it is his pride, it is his passions, his loves, his lusts, his praise that he so so wanted, and the power that came with all of his wealth. Repentance is the antidote. It is the remedy for all the sin that exists in our life. Let me ask you this. Who is seated on the throne of your heart today. You know, it's, it is sad for me to confess that as I was sitting at various places in my house, in the living room, as I was working on this sermon, my heart was being tugged by other idols. By other idols. Who is seated on the throne of your heart? And what do you do? What do you do when you sin? What is your response? Is it to sweep it under the rug and carry on? Or is it to honestly go before the Lord, listen to the Holy Spirit, and go to repentance? Or do you justify your sin? Have you ever tried justifying your sin before the Lord? It's a court case that you never win. I've tried it, you never win. So the promptings of the Holy Spirit are what lead us to repentance. And once there is repentance, there is grace. There is grace. Unlimited grace. Grace that is greater than any of our sins. Grace that is bigger than anything I can do. Grace that is completely limitless. There will never come a day when God will look at me and say, oh, You know, Azar blew out, and and, I don't have any more grace left for him. That's that's true for you. You will never out-sin God's grace. It's not a challenge, by the way. (laughs) God's grace is so much bigger, so much bigger than we can understand. It is a grace that is free, but remember that it is not cheap. This grace came at the cost of God the Son going to the cross. This grace is freely given when you call upon the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is freely available. It is given to you because Jesus Christ was condemned, so I can be justified. It is given because Jesus Christ was forsaken, so I can be forgiven. It has everything to do with God's love that manifests itself and shows itself on the cross of Calvary and in the empty tomb. You know, David's two sins ultimately ended up being used by God for the greatest work that happened in the history of the world. When David did the census and God sent pestilence, he asked the angel of pestilence to stop at the threshing floor of a man named Araunah. That threshing floor is just meters away according to tradition from where abraham took isaac to sacrifice that threshing floor becomes the holy of holies in the temple and that threshing floor is actually in the same region same area where the cross of calvary was erected and jesus christ died And out of his second sin, his sin with Bathsheba, comes the lineage that brings us Jesus Christ. No matter what your sin, God can use it for his glory. As long as we are willing to repent and be in a right relationship with the Lord. I think this morning is a a good morning for us to take a quick stock of where we are with God. Are these red flags that we talked about present in our life? Is is my life a life of compromises? Am I living a life that is willfully disobedient to God? Am I witnessing the presence of sin that is gradually escalating in my life? Do I walk in accountability with others? If any of those exist, I think it's time for a serious talk with the Holy Spirit. And then once we've done that, you know, God says, or First or John says, if we confess our sins to God, he is just and faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that was given 2,000 years ago. That's a promise that is true today. And that's a promise that will remain true until Jesus comes back. As the worship team comes to the front to get ready to lead us in our last song, I just want us to give us a moment to To enter into a time of prayer with an opportunity to confess whatever, whatever is hindering our relationship with the Lord. Whatever it is that stops us from having an open communication with God, we can bring it before Him. And if we're honest, we can ask the Holy Spirit for His forgiveness. We can ask the Holy Spirit to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're just going to take a moment of silent prayer as each one of us goes before the Lord with our prayers. But just remember that the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you and for me is all we need for forgiveness. Let us pray.
1: I don't know about you, but for me this service has been very overwhelming, right from the first. From the opening hymn through all the challenges of missions down to the last message I don't want to take anything away from all of that. When I was young, I was scared about being a pastor. I was scared about being a leader because I was going to fail and I knew it. And I didn't want to be a Solomon. And all through my life, I struggled with that. I I have been a failure. Don't get me wrong, but there's a difference between a David and a Solomon when it comes to failure. And I guess, I'm not sure, but it might go back to those 700 weddings. I wonder if Solomon ever sent God a wedding invitation. If he had, he might have survived. And if we do, we will survive, oh God. You who see us in a grand and immense way with a sweep of missions around the world, right down to the minuscule of our daily living, in small ways, where we commit ourselves to you, we come to you, O oh God, you, the Holy Spirit, and you're welcome to be in our hearts and in our lives and in our church that we may be saved and that we may. Live the glory of your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.